I'm Daniel Gowerluck, and this is On Earth. On Earth is brought to you by the Pacific Museum of Earth. In this podcast, we aim to show what it's like to be an Earth, ocean, or atmospheric scientist. There's a lot of diversity under that umbrella, and not all of our scientists wear lab coats. Today on Earth, we're talking to... Lindsay Hagee. Lindsay, welcome to the On Earth podcast. Um, now, you are a geo uh, data science, right? Yes. Geo, I do a lot with geophysical data and uh, computational methods in data science. Now, what on earth is a geo data scientist? <laughs> Very good question. Um, so, the types of data that I end up working a lot with, I work with a lot of geophysical data. And so we collect data over the Earth. For example, we might collect electromagnetic data, so maybe measurements of electrical and magnetic fields over the surface of the Earth, um, and try and use that to answer questions about, about the subsurface and about the geologic setting that we're in. And so there's a few different techniques that you might have uh, heard of or come across if you're working with these types of data. We can do things that are called inversion, and so we're working with um, the physical equations that govern, uh, govern the data that we're working with. So in the case of electromagnetics, we'd be working with Maxwell's equations. Um, and then what we try and do is build up a 3D image of the subsurface. Um, and so I find it a pretty fascinating way uh, to, to try and characterize uh, what's underground, uh, is that with data collected over the surface of the Earth, we can actually obtain some, some insights as to what's, what's under the ground beneath us. So does each like mineral type have a different... Um electromagnetic reaction? Yes, and so the um, different geophysical data types that we look at are sensitive to different physical properties. And so physical properties is really kind of the space that we're working in. So different minerals might have different electrical conductivities. So basically how easy they pass, they allow current to be passed through them. Um, and we would be sensitive to that in an electromagnetic experiment. Or they might have different densities. So one might be heavier than the other, more dense than another. Um, and that's something that we could detect then with a, with a gravity experiment. Um, so depending on the, the different uh, physical properties of, of those materials, that kind of governs what, what data types that we should be looking at. And are you doing this on foot or but with aircraft or satellites? How do you get these readings? That's one of the things that I think is so cool about working with geophysical data is they can actually be on basically any of those scales. Um, so I've seen and seen experiments where we're working on very small scales. Um, so perhaps actually collecting measurements on the ground, um, looking at a farm or, or looking at a, a small plot of land. Uh, they can be collected uh, from the air, so from helicopters or airplanes. And so we might cover larger swaths of land. Um, lots of airborne geophysics has been flown all over British Columbia. Uh, and then there's also data that's collected by satellites. Um, so there's a number of Earth observing satellites, for example, the GRACE satellite uh, looks at gravity data uh, over the whole whole surface of the Earth and so um, the whole Earth. And so each of these are kind of we're looking at different scales and different resolutions depending on where the data are collected. That's really, um, really diverse. And <laughs> I'm always uh, shocked when I find out that geoscientists, people who we always think of as looking down at the ground, uh, get involved with um, you know, satellites and space, uh, space exploration, because, you know, that's looking up. It is. And I think that's, um, you know, it's a fascinating thing. When I was doing a postdoc at, at UC Berkeley, I ended up um, connecting a fair bit with some folks in astronomy, 
Um, and, you know, a lot of the different challenges that we face with sensors and things like that um, end up being actually fairly similar. It is just a matter of is the satellite pointed down or is it pointing up? Um, and so there's obviously more, more to it than that, but there, there's some common ground there, which makes it really interesting. Common ground. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, how did you get into this really cool field? That's a good question. Um, and I think perhaps like many students, I came into university not really knowing um, what I wanted to do. Um, so I did my undergraduate at the University of Alberta. And I went in and sort of, you know, I, I knew that I liked um, science, mathematics and physics. And coming right out of high school, the sort of the two careers that I thought you could do with those skill sets were, were something in medicine or, or engineering. And I wasn't really tied to either of those, um, but that's kind of the perception I came in with. Um, and then I was in a, it was at the time, it was a brand new first year program there. It's called Science 100. Uh, it's since been, uh, it's since been terminated or com come to a close, which is unfortunate. Um, but it was a fully integrated uh, first year science program. And so there were, um, I think there were nine professors who, who were involved from all, all across the faculty of science. So biology, mathematics, psychology, um, who came together and really had this sort of interdisciplinary first year. Um, and I know there, there's some sort of parallels with the, I think it's science, science one at UBC. Is that what it is? Um, and so, yeah, I think there, there's a somewhat analogous problem or program, um, but, you know, really seeing this sort of interdisciplinary view on science was something that I found to be really exciting. Um, and in particular, one of the things that really struck with me is, you know, a lot of the instructors would sit in on each other's courses. Um, and so it ended up being the case that the psychology professor was the person asking the most questions in the math lectures. Um, and sort of just seeing this space where, you know, you can, it, it was really kind of a window into research um, where, you know, you're, you're always learning, you're asking questions of different disciplines. And just because you're in one given domain, um, you know, there's so much to be gained by, by looking into another field and, and connecting with folks. Um, and so that certainly got me interested in, in research. Um, and from there, I started to see some options for sort of, um, you know, more mathematical um, and, and geoscience careers. I switched um, from, from there, I switched into actually mathematics. Um, which is something I, I still do a lot of and I'm very excited about. Um, but I found that I really wanted to be in a discipline that was um, much more applied. So focused on problems that are really sort of connected with society and the environment around us. Um, and so kind of looking through all of the different programs, uh, the fit that I found was geophysics, is being able to you know, work with mathematics and, and physics, but to really understand the, the earth around us. Um, and so that's that's where where I got hooked. When we uh, talk about diversity, we often talk about the diversity of researchers, but it's also really uh, useful to have a, a diversity of research and scientific backgrounds. And I think that what you're that course that you're talking about um, really underlines that having people from chemistry and physics and math all talk to each other because um, one person may have a perspective which can really solve a problem that someone else is struggling with. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, one of the things I so appreciated, or the, one of the many things that I so appreciated about that course is seeing that each discipline kind of has its own building blocks and ways that we sort of understand, understand the world around us. And there's certain, you know, pieces of knowledge that you draw on to build up your understanding. 
and seeing that that's different across disciplines. Um, and that it's okay to, to ask some of these very simple questions um, when you're in an interdisciplinary setting, because you know it's not expected that you be an expert in any, uh, any of the given domains, um, but that you work together to sort of draw on the knowledge of the group. And so that's a really um, rich and exciting space to be in. You're living at the center of several uh, scientific Venn diagrams. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's good. always good to be in intersections. <laughs> uh, now, you touched on this, but I'm curious, uh, what is your professional background? Uh, you seem to have gone to a few different schools. Yes, so I did my undergraduate at the University of Alberta in geophysics. Um, and then from there, I came to UBC. Uh, so I started as a master's student uh, in geophysics with um, Doug Oldenburg in the Geophysical Inversion Facility. Um, I did a number of internships along the way, uh, which was a great experience, so just getting connected with folks in industry, sort of seeing how science is done um, in industrial settings. Um, I upgraded to, to a PhD, so I completed my PhD at UBC in uh, 2018. And then I went down to Berkeley, California. Um, and so I did a postdoc there in the stats department, working with folks um, in data science and um, specifically in the uh, Jupiter project. Um, so if you're interact or if you're familiar with interactive computing and, and Python programming, um, you might have heard of Jupiter notebooks. Um, so worked with a number of folks there who um, are really sort of le leading the way um, with respect to bringing interactive computing to different domains of science. And then uh, this July, I'm coming back to UBC. Uh, so officially starting July, July 1st, um, as an assistant professor and thrilled, thrilled to be joining the faculty here. Excellent. Uh, I have actually heard the term Jupyter Notebooks being thrown around a ton. Um, and everyone always expects me to know what, what it means. <laughs> Can you explain what on earth is a Jupyter Notebook? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so what it is, is it's an interactive computing environment. And so what I mean by that is that you can pull up a notebook, you can, um, you can add cells where you include some text, so you can include a bit of description as to what you're doing. Um, but really what makes it interactive is the way that you do computing. And so you can write a few lines of code. I work a lot in Python, but you can also do this in R, or many, many, many languages, uh, many computing languages. There's, I think, a, over 100 at this point that have been um, implemented and, and are supported by Jupyter. Um, but many folks if, through the undergrad program at UBC will get, uh, get to touch some Python at some point. Um, and so the way that you can really work with it is you can run sort of small segments of code um, and visualize the outputs and kind of decide then what you're going to do based on what you're seeing. So, so much of science and especially sort of when you're in that exploratory phase of research, you know, you're going to load up your data and the first thing you do is just load it and plot it and look at it. Um, and you might look at it on different scales and zoom into different parts and then perhaps try and fit some trends and, and things like that. Um, but that's really sort of an iterative um, workflow where you're kind of, you, you do a small step, you look at your results, and then from there you're gonna decide what you do next. Um, and so the notebook is really kind of a way to uh, enable you to work in that way, but also sort of capture all of your steps that you've done to, to work through your analysis. So that's something that you can have kind of basically as, you know, very much like uh, analogous to your written notebook. It is your computational notes as to how you got from sort of, you know, plotting and visualizing your data to, to some sort of insights down the way. Sounds like you're in the matrix. <laughs> <laughs> is that what you're working on right now? Or do you have another project on the go? 
Um, so I work with the notebook as sort of a, a tool to do my research. Um, but a lot of the work that I'm doing right now is with geophysical data. Um, and so really um, building up simulations, um, running inversions where we're trying to characterize the subsurface of the Earth um, and, and perhaps using also some um, machine learning techniques in there. And I can give you maybe a couple of specific examples. Um, so one project that I've been doing some early stage work on that I'm quite excited about is um, looking at trying to uh, characterize um, and classify unexploded ordnance from electromagnetic data. So unexploded ordnance are basically munitions or bombs that have been dropped but did not explode. So they're still a hazard. Um, and these are, uh, there's certainly some in war zones, but there's also lots in training grounds. Um, and so I think folks are often surprised that there's a lot of these sites across Canada. Um, I think there's uh, over a hundred at this point that have been identified that need to be cleaned up. Um, and so often these sites, especially if they were training grounds, there's lots of scrap metal and all of this sort of stuff around. And so you don't necessarily want to go and spend a bunch of time very carefully digging up every little thing that you see with the metal detector, right? Because often sometimes that's just scrap metal and the amount of care that you have to take to dig up something that's that's potentially very dangerous um, is, is a lot, so it's time consuming. And so um, one way that we can perhaps um, help sort of speed that process up safely is if from the data that we measure these, so in this case, we're gonna work with electromagnetic data, um, can we then classify uh, if something is a dangerous ordnance item or if it's just scrap metal. Um, and so with that, we're then sort of looking at machine learning techniques and, and inversion techniques to estimate the parameters of these objects. Um, and so in, in, in the same way, you know, it's a lot of the same physics that's perhaps used in mineral exploration. And so it's just on a different scale. For the unexploded ordnance, we're looking at sort of, you know, maybe a hundred meters or like hundreds of meters or acres of land. Um, whereas if we do the same thing from uh, a helicopter, uh, we might be looking at, you know, kilometers of, or tens of kilometers of, of areas or, or ranges. Um, and so it's a lot of the same, same physics and same ideas. Um, and that's, yeah, th those are a, a couple flavors of, of some of the research that I'm involved in. That is not what I expected you to, you to be working on. Um, unexploded ordnance. That's really cool. And, and that's a really big uh, benefit to society. <laughs> Yes, it's one of these things that you don't really, um, I, I was surprised even sort of doing the early um, looking to realize how many sites there are kind of around the world and what a prevalent um, societal issue that this really is. Yeah, and it's not something that we expect to find here in Canada. Have you made any discoveries that you're really uh, proud of in your work? Um, so the, the work I do, I'd say, is... Um, it's a methods-oriented style of working. So I'm really working on developing computational methods, um, inversion methods, data science methods to understand those data. And so one of the things that I've been um, really proud to be involved in, really thrilled to be involved in, is uh, an open source software project uh, for building up tools for, for working with these data. Um, and so I helped found uh, the SIMPEG project. So SIMPEG stands for Simulation and Parameter Estimation in Geophysics. Um, and I found this to just be such a, such a really a, in a, a transformative way of um, working with folks is because you end up by working in an open source kind of framework, you're really able to draw on expertise from folks who have really different skill sets. 
Um, so there's some folks in the community who are uh, very computationally driven, very deep into developing efficient algorithms. Um, and that, that's something extremely valuable. Um, there's also folks who have a lot of uh, hands-on and very practical experience working with field data. And those are just people by nature who come from different backgrounds. Um, but by being able to combine those different expertise uh, in, in one project, um, I think there's, there's a lot that can be accomplished and I'm really excited to see it uh, continue to grow and be hopefully a, a useful tool for applications from, from mining to groundwater uh, to environmental applications. So if that's an open source software, does that mean it's on the web and just anyone can access it? Yes. Yep. It's uh, if you Google Simpeg, S-I-M-P-E-G, uh, you should be able to find it. And there's instructions for downloading. It's a Python. It's a Python package. Um, and so it's developed very much like a lot of open source software packages where we have it on GitHub, which is a platform for um, versioning and discussing code. Um, and it can be downloaded from there. And if you have suggestions for how to improve it, uh, you can you can come bring them there too. I have to admit, I'm a bit of a Luddite. Uh, so this is, uh, you're peeling back the secrets on the magic box that I call the computer. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, it's a fun space to be in. And it's certainly one um, that I really got exposed to in my PhD. I never thought I would be doing as much sort of software, uh, software work as I currently am. And it's something I, I really enjoy. Speaking of which, uh, what is your favorite part of your work? It all sounds so exciting, but if you had to choose one or two favorite bits. You know, I think being in working with geophysical data and sort of doing methods oriented research, you kind of really are in a space where we're really trying to foster and, and work on multidisciplinary or interdisciplinary problems. You know, geophysical data or data science techniques um, are methods that can be applied to a wide range of problems. But you really need to work with folks who have that domain expertise about what we're what we're working on. And so, you know, I've had the opportunity to work with um, folks who are in geology, folks who have a lot of mining experience. Um, but then being able to translate that and you know apply the same electrical and electromagnetic methods uh, to look for groundwater. And so been involved in a humanitarian project where um, we're helping, um, or we were working with some folks in Myanmar um, and so sent equipment. And there was a, a team of folks who, who went there um, to train local geoscientists and engineers how to use geophysics to, to locate groundwater uh, for regions where they had drought um, and such in the dry seasons. Um, and so sort of being in the space where you can look at this, the same technique and it can be applied for such diverse, uh, diverse applications, um, I think is, is a really exciting space to be in. That's really cool. And, and again, it's amazing. It's not just uh, mining. <laughs> Whenever we think of like people studying what's under the ground, we just think of uh, mining companies, but you're helping communities find water and you're diffusing bombs. It's, it's definitely uh, an exciting space. And, and two, I mean, a lot of the literature you end up looking at or even applications that we've been involved in, some actually are not, with to, not to do with earth science. We were on a call recently um, with some folks who are doing cancer research and they are looking at the use of um, electrical fields uh, to slow the um, division and sort of replication of cancer cells. Uh, and they were looking at simulation tools and it's the same, I mean, Maxwell's equations are Maxwell's equations. And so it's the same, you know, underlying physics, but it's, we have the, 
very different applications, but this connection point of, of working with the same physics. And they were even able to use uh, some of the same tools uh, that, that we've been developed for numerical modeling and geophysics. Now, you've used this phrase a couple of times. Uh, who is this Maxwell and what are his equations or why are they important? <laughs> good, good question. So uh, James Clerk Maxwell. Um, and so he's the one who, in a sense, really um, synthesized the, um, brought together the governing equations of electromagnetics. And so they relate um, currents and magnetic fields and electric fields and physical properties um, so the electrical conductivity and, and magnetic properties of materials, uh, they relate all of these all of these different components. And so it gives us a governing set of equations that, for example, if we know the electrical conductivity of the Earth um, and we know what our source currents are. So, for example, if we're doing an airborne electromagnetic experiment, what you do there is there's actually um, a helicopter that's going to tow a big loop. And with that loop, we're going to pump current through that loop. And if you have a time-varying current, that produces a time-varying magnetic field. Um, and a time-varying magnetic field that interacts with something that's electrically conductive. We're going to induce currents. And so we can induce currents in the Earth. And those produce their own magnetic fields. And we can measure that from that same helicopter. Um, and so that whole process uh, and, and that set of sort of um, uh, physical responses that, um, that we're observing there, that's governed by Maxwell's equations. Wow, that's a really creative way of studying the Earth. <laughs> it is. It's pretty fascinating that we can use, you know, magnetic field measurements over the surface of the Earth and electric measurements uh, to understand what can be hundreds of meters below uh, below our feet. It's kind of like, um, I guess, radar, but underground. <laughs> so um, that's the best part of your job, uh, just the, uh, the creativity and, and the ability to work with different people. Uh, it sounds like you never... Um, you can never get bored because <laughs> if you ever get if you get bored with one aspect, you just hop into another field and interact with them. Uh, I'm going to ask the flip side, though. What's the worst part or the most challenging aspect of your work? So I think worst and most challenging are actually very different things. Absolutely. <laughs> um, I guess one um, one of the things that I think is kind of a, a negative aspect right now is I think that there is kind of a negative perception of applied geophysics. Um, and near-surface geophysics and kind of this notion that often when, when the term applied geophysics is used, it's really conflated kind of only with it's all about oil and gas exploration and resource extraction. Uh, and certainly that's a component of it. And there's been, you know, a, a lot of uh, very good research done in those spaces. Um, but that's not all that it's about. There's, um, there's so much more to it um, with respect to where we can make an impact in, um, you know, groundwater and environmental applications. Um, so it is a, a much broader broader field than that. Um, and with respect to most challenging, which I think is actually um, a positive uh, thing and, and part of why I find this interesting, I think working in multidisciplinary um, spaces is hard. <laughs> um, is that, you know, there's so much, you spend a lot of time um, learning how to communicate with folks from other disciplines and learning how to understand how, what are those conceptual building blocks that they use to understand uh, understand the world around us? Um, and so perhaps one example I can give is um, we use the terms every, and I think a lot of disciplines do this, we use the terms model and data very loosely. 
Um, and so one conversation I had with, um, it was a student I was uh, connected with at a, at a conference. We just got, got chatting about a, a poster and chatting, chatting about her work in groundwater hydrology. Um, is she was doing, um, uh, she had a, a geophysical or a, a, a she had a model, uh, is what I'm going to use, the, a term that was derived from geophysical data. So using electromagnetic data, those data were inverted to build up an electrical conductivity model of the subsurface. So that's the terms I use with my, with my geophysics hat on. Um, the interesting thing that I found is that she used uh, the term data to refer to what I was calling the model. These were geophysical data. Um, and so it took us actually just a little bit to even sort out, make sure, you know, what, is, what exactly are we talking about right now? Um, but I think one of the things that's actually really important in this kind of interdisciplinary handoff, in a sense, um, is both sort of the, the language, but also communicating uncertainty, um, is that, you know, when you use the term data, we kind of associate uncertainties just being with respect to, you know, what was measured. So measurement uncertainty. And that's something we can perhaps um, gain some understanding with just with the, the system that was used to make that measurement. Whereas when we use um, when we use models and we, we derive something from our data, there's a lot of assumptions that go into that. Um, we so we simplify things because um, because we need to, to 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 get some to get something out. Um, and when you interchange those words, um, if you kind of you are, are at risk of losing um, losing context of those assumptions that were imposed. Um, and so I think there's there's a lot of challenges um, and, and subtlety to really working with with folks in other disciplines, both with communicating, but um, also with, you know, translating information uh, across different domains. It's got to be. Um a constantly humbling process to be working with experts in fields where uh, you've only gotten a basic knowledge. Um, and like you said, the lingo and the language changes uh, depending on which field or which hat you're wearing at the time. Yes, definitely. Um, speaking of challenges, I'm curious, uh, do you identify as belonging to any uh, underrepresented communities? And um, if so, do you feel like that's impacted your career? So I am a, a female in science and in quantitative science, um, also involved in open source software. And so there's are spaces perhaps where, where females have traditionally been, been underrepresented. Um, and there are certainly still challenges, but I've been very encouraged to see the progress being made and, and extremely encouraged by the efforts being made uh, within the department um, and really how much work and thought um, I think is going into making sure that we make some progress on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, in terms of impacting my career and my, my thought processes, and um, I think being involved in open source software, I have learned, I've learned a lot from the communities and the practices that have been um, developed, is that a lot of projects um, are distributed. So there's people from all around the world who may or may not have actually ever met each other. Um, might be from very different cultures, um, different backgrounds, different perspectives. Um, and so there's, there's a lot of thought, I think, that a lot of communities have put into just establishing some practices for effective communication. So it can be things like a code of conduct. Um, it can be things like how you structure, how you structure your development meetings. 
uh, to make sure that everyone has a chance to speak. Uh, and how you respect, and I know we've um, all gotten a bit of a crash course in this, how you respect um, folks when you're doing video conferences and in different time zones, how do you navigate all that to make sure that, you know, the, the handful of folks who are 12 hours away from you in a different time zone, how do they have a chance to participate in the conversation? Um, and so I, there's there's been a lot that I've, I've learned by interacting with a number of different communities as to... Um, how to how to take some steps um, to to make those spaces more inclusive? Yeah, it's amazing how um, uh, doing everything, all having all our conferences on video conferencing, um, at first it seemed like it was going to open it up to to everyone and make our conferences more accessible. But uh, like you said, they've also come with their own challenges uh, that we didn't really foresee. Yes, and so um, I mean there there are some benefits in that I think we've perhaps all gotten a little more comfortable with pauses um, in, in a room is that it's it's much easier to jump in and, and speak over one another when you're in a physical room. But um, but it but it still is, is challenging to really effectively structure a meeting to make sure that, you know, not one person is, is doing all of the talking. So, <laughs> yes. Absolutely. Uh, it sounds like your field is um, naturally fairly open and welcoming to outsiders. Um, and you mentioned that they have been making strides to be more uh, diverse and inclusive. Um, but how do you feel it is right now? Or is my perception incorrect? <laughs> you know, I think it's undergone a lot of, and I think this is perhaps true of, of many fields. I think there's been a real shift and sort of a lot more focus and, and time spent thinking about how to make communities and disciplines and fields inclusive. I would say overall, uh, overall, the discipline, I think, is um, is a friendly and, and welcoming place. Um, yeah, but I do I do think that there's been um, I think there's been a bit more of a transition just in, in recent years to to be more deliberate about that, um, which is which is really encouraging to see. It's always great when um, communities are making more um, more efforts to be more inclusive and welcoming. Mm hmm. Um, now, you touched on this earlier just a bit, but um, I'm curious, how has the COVID-19 pandemic impacted your work, if at all? And uh, have you been able to continue, continue your work and your studies from home? So um, doing computational work, work in, in open source software, there's certainly some things where we've got established practices with, with working rem with remote teams. And so I think I was fortunate to be able to, to draw on a lot of that. I mean, but as with everyone, it's presented um, some enormous challenges, you know, uncertainty in just day-to-day -day life and that kind of ambient stress level um, just of, you know, concern for family members and, and friends. Um, and so that's certainly certainly been something that I think we've, we've all experienced this year. And hopefully that's, um, you know, perhaps brought a level of empathy um, that we can maybe all continue to hold as, as we move forward. Um, and so I think, you know, overall, like a lot of a lot of my work, I was able to to continue being being quite computational. But I think there's also some elements really of collaboration um, that are just really hard to do in a virtual environment. You know, just popping by somebody's office and dropping in for a couple of minutes to ask a quick question or walking with somebody to go grab a coffee. You know, you have those much more informal wandering conversations where you can 
learn about their day, um, but also perhaps just explore some ideas and, and bat some ideas around. And, you know, having to schedule things and set up a Zoom link um, just <laughs> introduces a bit more bit more friction there. Um, and so I'm very much looking forward to, to getting back to campus and being able to connect with folks in person. Okay, that makes me feel better. Um, if a you know, a hardcore computer person like yourself is missing the in-person interactions, uh, then, you know, a big old Luddite like myself, um, I don't feel quite as bad. No, there's definitely something to be said about, um, yeah, being able to bump into people and uh, see folks day to day. Uh, now, you've explained your fascinating uh, field of study. Um, if anyone's listening right now, uh, what uh, courses or background or experience would you recommend that they uh, undertake to follow in your footsteps if they want to um, yeah, do so? I mean, I think building up uh, some quantitative skills is something that's becoming increasingly important. Um, and working with, you know, data is critical now in so many fields. It's we're, we're, the size and availability of the data sets that we're working with is just it's growing so quickly. It's it's a really exciting space to be in. But it does mean that we need to have, um, you know, building up a few basic programming skills, a bit of knowledge of linear algebra and statistics. You know, that that toolkit can take you really far. Um, you don't need to become, I know, a professional software engineer, but having a bit of a basic knowledge of, of how to do some programming, um, how to how to work with some of this, uh, you know, statistical models and things like that, I think is is a really powerful toolkit. Um, and so, you know, um, building up those skills uh, in the context of, of problems and questions and, and applications that excite you. Um, and so, you know, following uh, Following your your instincts on on courses and and things that are interesting, I think is is a is a good way to go. And what was the uh, the most important course that you took when you were in school? I think this Science One Hundred uh, course that I mentioned earlier in the interview um, is you know it really introduced me to and gave me experience with the process of science, the process of asking questions. Um, and as you mentioned, you know, these uh, humbling experiences where you're asking world experts uh, some very basic questions, um, being able to see that in action as an undergrad um, and see that with folks who I deeply respected um, asking very basic questions uh, of each other was something that I think was it was very, uh, very impactful in my career. Seeing a, a prof confuse astronomy and astrology, I'm, I'm sure. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. Like we all we all make those mistakes and, and it's OK. <laughs> I'm curious, in addition to I mean, the courses are important in, in establishing your career, uh, but so, too, are the personal aspects uh, that like you were mentioning before. Um, so I'm curious, did anyone inspire you or did you find uh, any role models as you were going through your studies? Yes, there's there's been a number of folks who I would say have inspired me, um, including folks uh high school teachers to faculty at U of A and, and UBC, there's uh, quite a number and I won't name them all. Um, but, you know, I think one of the things that I've really seen is, is a perhaps a bit of a, a pattern or maybe common theme with these folks is really approaching the world with curiosity um, and just sort of a playful curiosity and, you know, finding enjoyment uh, and learning things um, and not knowing something. Um, you know, the it takes humility uh, to look at something that you don't know and be excited by that. 
um, and be excited by what you might find out. Um, whether that is something that is, is known in, in a case you might be learning something in a classroom, um, but also in research, you know, is you're, you're looking at a question, you're puzzled by it, you're gonna be frustrated by it, but also finding, finding enjoyment um, in that exploration is something that, um, yeah, I, I've sort of seen as a, a, perhaps a common thread among many of the folks who've inspired me. I like that. Um, you're inspired by a personality trait uh, <laughs> in addition to the people. Okay, so you're at the, uh, the beginning of a very exciting career, um, but looking to the long term, what would you like to be the legacy of your career when you retire? Or what do you want written on your career's tombstone when you retire? Yeah, that's a, that's a big question. Easy, easy one to answer. Uh, gosh. Um, you know, I think perhaps the term, um, or the term I'd like to use or, or think about um, is contribution. Um, and wanting to do this on a few different angles. So, you know, I want to make contributions and help contribute and make progress on challenges at the intersection of earth science and society. As responsible management of resources, the environment around us. Um, and so if, if, if at the end of the day, um, that, that's something that I can have contributed positive progress to, I would be very excited about that. As well as to the culture of the field. Um, and the, the culture of earth science, uh, you know, if we can um, continue to, to make the space uh, and environments around us more collaborative, uh, more inclusive and diverse. And if that is something that I can also help make some positive progress on um, those, those are things I would be, be very excited, very excited about. Admirable goals <laughs> and uh, very achievable, I think, too, <laughs> for you. Hopefully, hopefully. <laughs> Uh, continuing with this idea of um, foreshadowing, uh, I know that every field today is changing at lightning speed. And, um, you know, the fields that we have today may in 10 years look completely different. Um, so looking to the long term, uh, for any young people who are listening to you, uh, what advice would you have for them to anticipate some of these changes and get ahead of the curve? Um yeah, and get a head start in the field. I mean, so I think I think some of it is working on what are some of those core skills that um, that can serve you in multiple places. And so we might not be able to anticipate all of the changes that are that are coming. But um, as I mentioned before, I think having some quantitative skills um, are really transferable skills. Are, are skills you can apply uh, in a wide range of places, and you can adapt them um, adapt them as you as you need to, and as you face new challenges. Uh, so that's something that I think you you can't go wrong on. Um, the other thing I think too is we also start to see or continue to see you know science be interdisciplinary, crossing disciplinary lines. Like a lot of the big questions that we face, we're asking about how do we responsibly manage resources. Uh, that's a very big question that is much much bigger than a single discipline. Um, even bigger than science is we need to bring in you know policy, um, and understanding of business, and understanding of um, social sciences. Um, and so, you know, did, no one's going to become an expert in all of these fields, but I think one of the skills you can, you can work on developing is learning how to ask good questions. Um, and so some of that is practice is just asking questions. Um, but I also, one of the things I so enjoy when I go to conferences or have the chance to attend talks um, is listening to the questions that people ask. Um, and if you hear a question that's that's particularly insightful, you know, make note of perhaps why why was that a good question? Um, often they're the very simple ones, 
Um, and so I think that, you know, that, that's something that we all uh, are, are continuing to learn. And, and that's something I, I still try and pay attention to and, and learn from um, folks who are, who've been in the field for longer than I have. There's, there's lots to learn there. I can't count the number of times that I've asked a question and then thought, oh, I wish I hadn't asked that. <laughs> that was not a good question. Yes, it's a hard, it's a hard thing to do. Uh, and it takes some courage to, to, you know, ask a question that may or may not be, may or may not be the right one. <laughs> it sounds like your advice to the next generation is that uh, math and an open mind never go out of style. <laughs> that sounds like a wonderful way to summarize it. <laughs> well, Lindsay, um, speaking of questions, those are all my questions, um, good and bad. Um, <laughs> did you have anything you wanted to share before I let you go? Uh, just that I am so looking forward to connecting with folks uh, on campus and uh, can't wait to, to meet up in person in the not too distant future. Wonderful. Well, I, I can't wait to meet you uh, physically too and welcome you into the department. Well, thanks very much. Thanks for having me, Daniel. Thanks for listening to Honor. Honor is hosted by me and produced by myself, Kirsten Hodge, our editor, Mel Woods, and Ollie Beebe designed our logo. On Earth is made possible thanks to the generous support of the Canadian Geological Foundation. For more episodes like this one, please visit our website at pme.ubc.ca slash learn slash podcast, or listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week, here on Earth.